When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. So give us a call right now with your questions for Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Eusebius. Merry Christmas. Same to you. Compliments of the season. Okay, our science story this week is about a NASA probe. Yes. Well, this is the New Horizons probe. And this launched in the mid-noughties. I was very fortunate to interview the gentleman who was responsible for running the mission, Alan Stern, and it was to reach Pluto. And in 2015, to much fanfare, New Horizons, which was by then the fastest man-made object in the solar system, flew past Pluto doing about 51,000 kilometres an hour and took these amazing, extraordinary pictures. Since then, it has continued out into the outer reaches of our solar system and is now transitioning through what we call the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt is this material that flanks the outer part of the the solar system that we can see where Pluto is. And the big news is that, by chance, New Horizons is now going to encounter another Kuiper Belt object, because Pluto is one of them. This one is called Ultima Thule, and it's a sort of peanut-shaped blob out there. It's quite small. It's not anything like the size of Pluto. But we're going to get within 3,500 kilometres of this with New Horizons, and it will send back some pictures of what this object looks like. And this is our first opportunity to see the most distant thing in our solar system so far. And this is important because we don't know really what's out there. We, we have ideas, we have models, we have some very blurry images of some of these objects that we know, and there are probably thousands of them in this patch of, of our cosmic neighbourhood. But this is the first time we're venturing there with a spacecraft that's going to take pictures and it's going to send them back. The distances, though, at six and a half billion kilometres out there, it's so far away, the radio signals containing those pictures are going to take more than six hours to get back to Earth, which is an extraordinary thing. Mm. But anyway, they'll be coming back pretty soon when it makes that encounter. And um, hopefully we'll get some extraordinary pictures of the first Kuiper Belt object other than Pluto that we've interacted with. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Muzwan Dile, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Yubi. Good. Yeah, I've got a question for Chris. I noticed that we as human beings, we can actually touch, the, we, we're not allowed to touch actually the electric fence. If we touch it, we, we're dead. But then I normally see the beds and then, then they stand on, on top of the electric fence, but they don't get shocked. So my question is that, why are the bears not dying? Thank you, Mzwandile. A naked scientist classic there, Chris. Yeah, good question. Now, the answer to this is that electricity flows from an area of high potential to an area of low potential. In plain English, what that means is that where there's a lot of electrical charge, i.e. in the electric fence, it wants to spread out to where there's less of an electric charge earth now if a bird is sitting only on the fence it is at the same potential as the electricity in the fence and the electricity therefore can't use the bird to get to earth to balance out the disequilibrium and spread the charge out when you're on the electric fence if you're standing on the ground you are providing the electricity with a route a conduit from where there's a lot of it in the conductor of the fence 
down to the earth. If you were to jump onto the fence and hang on and only touch one conductor at, at the same potential, which is what the bird's doing when it's sitting on one wire, then you too would be uh, immune to the effects of the electricity until you provided the electricity with a conduit to earth. So that's why birds can sit on power lines with impunity and not be electrocuted because they're sitting at the same potential as the electricity. There's no potential difference. Therefore, the electricity doesn't flow and therefore no life-threatening current flows through the bird. Debbie, good morning to you. Good morning. My question is, why when we hear a song that we know, that we feel compelled to sing along? Were you singing along to Who Let the Dogs Out just now? Anything that I recognize. Chris, is that just sociology, or is there some more fundamental scientific reason? I I was thinking we could do a demo. Have we got any sort of music we can can sort of play out, and then we can get Debbie to to join in and show show this in action? (laughs) That's a... Yeah, we can do the experiment right here. That might be a bit cruel, actually. Um, I think the reason for this, Debbie, is that as social creatures, we we are successful because we get on with each other and we fall into step with each other. And that's that's both a metaphor, but also there's an example of this. When you see armies marching, it's examples of people all doing things together and falling into sync with each other. And our brains are patterned in order to look for patterns that we recognize in the world and then fit into them or respond to them and music educates you you learn the beat you learn the word sequences and this is important because it's not just learning a tune and singing along for entertainment that's how we remember information and historically before we knew how to write things down people used music and they used poetry to store information because if you had rules about the pattern of the language and the sequence of the words and how the rhyme worked and how many syllables they had to have it sounds like just a a bit, bit of a sort of linguistic obsessive compulsive disorder but it was really important because what it meant was that it constrained the message and that kept the message faithful if people had to make the message fit a certain pattern they tended to get the message right because they could learn the rhythm learn the meter learn the tune if you like and then they kept the words right and that meant that the history and the information embodied within that story was also maintained faithfully and the, the, the same rules apply today when we sing tunes and things you know you look a bit weird if you sing the words wrong and everyone knows it so you learn them and then you fall into step both vocally lyrically and so on so i, I think it's all part of being human and, and the fact that we we're a social species and we all do things together on mass and join in and that's why we're so successful as a species tasneem good morning good morning thank you for a wonderful show and all the best for the new year. A quick one. I've heard that if you cut an onion, you must use the entire onion. If you don't, it absorbs all the toxins in the environment it is in. Is that actually true? Lovely question. Um, no, I think that's probably a healthy helping of um, tr- fact and fiction in there. Uh, let me explain what I mean. When you cut an onion, you are traumatising the onion and breaking open cells and you are releasing various chemicals which are normally kept locked away in a special cupboard like the medicine chest inside the cells and when the chemicals are kept sequestered inside the cells they don't do any damage but as soon as you traumatise the cells by cutting what you're doing is releasing these various things and they have the effect of beginning to break down the tissue of the onion and they produce various unpleasant tasting compounds they also 
literally rot out the cells and it's like detonating a self-destruct sequence in the onion and the onion isn't absorbing nasties from the environment it's basically making nasties that break itself apart and any bacteria that are on fungi that are on the surface of the onion also then have access to a lot of goodies inside the onion and they'll also start to join the party so you should use the onion because it's going to taste best and it's going to taste freshest and impart the nicest flavors to your cooking when it's been used fresh if you keep it for any period of time because of these degradative effects it will lose quality it will also begin to go off and it won't taste as good but it's not soaking up nasties in the environment it's basically making its own and the bugs that are already on it are going to also make things worse so that's that's why really the best use of a fruit and vegetable when you have to cut into it is to use all of it as quickly as possible because what's left behind won't be as good as the fresh version paul you've got a question for us good thank you my son and I were talking about the highest mountain. Now, he said to me, Everest is the highest mountain. I said to him, no, it isn't. In the, in the Pacific Ocean, there's a mountain that is 13,000 meters. So why is everyone referred to Everest as the highest mountain on Earth? Well, I think this is a historical thing, because until we could go there, we had no idea what was beneath the surface of the waves. And actually, we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the bottom of the ocean, because it's really hard to get there. And so it's only in recent years that we've had mapping vessels and the technology to explore the ocean in more detail. And exactly as you say, there are very deep reaches of the ocean, you know, down to 12 plus kilometres down. And there are areas of the ocean where there are mountain ranges where those mountains are essentially taller than many of what we regard as exceptionally high mountains on the land surface. Everest is the tallest peak above sea level, above the waves, but in the ocean there are exceptionally tall mountains too. They're just underwater. Okay, I think we've got you back now, Simon. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you, sir. Go ahead. I've got a question for the naked scientist. This is something that has been puzzling me on my body. Maybe after 24 hours or so after I have shaved my head, if I eat something very hot, something with a lot of chilies, feel the itch on my scalp. What could be causing this? Mm, I'm very fond of very hot chilies as well. And uh, it does the same thing to me. And I thought about this the other day, actually, Simon, and my theory, and this is just a theory, but when you take very hot chilli, it's laced with a chemical called capsaicin. Capsaicin binds to nerve fibres in your mouth and throat that are signalling normally temperature. And it fools them into thinking that the temperature is much higher than it is. And that's part of the burning sensation. But there are also mechanisms plumbed into your body where when you experience high temperature, it triggers heat loss processes. And those heat loss processes include increasing the blood flow to the superficial tissues like the, like the scalp and the skin. They also activate sweat glands, which is why a hot curry, even on a cold day, will make the eater sweat. So it's possible that without your hair there to soak away and wick away the sweat, you get little droplets of sweat on the skin surface and it could be that the little blobs of sweat are irritating or making you tingle. Partly that. Also, the chilli ingredient itself could be activating the nervous system more broadly and increasing the likelihood of itch-sensitive nerve fibres discharging in the same area of the body where the chilli is being consumed. So I think those, there's two aspects to it. One is it could be triggering those heat loss mechanisms and those are making the skin feel prickly and itchy, partly because of sweating, but there may also be some broader activation of the nerve fibres that trigger itch because of the chilli effect. And I think it could be a combination of the two.
702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Teboho, good morning. Are you CBS? How are you? Good, thank you. Hi, Chris. Uh, I wanted to find out. I read somewhere that uh, cost of reproduction between males and females is the same, which is weird because uh, males produce sperm and females produce eggs. And in some instances, females get to bear young for like 22 months. And it went on and said that evolution would eventually eliminate the male species if the cost of reproduction wasn't the same. Then males would be regarded as fetus if that wasn't the case. So I was wondering if you had any idea as to what made the cost of reproduction the same to males and females. Chris? Yes, indeed. I mean, this is a very good point that um, the the cost of reproduction on a female is very high if you have to grow a baby and be pregnant and have all of the metabolic burden and the physical burden of growing a baby for months at a time. You've got to put all that food and energy into the baby. You have the threat to your health because in some countries, even today, the risk of getting pregnant as a human can be as high as, or the risk of dying if you become pregnant, is as high as 25-30% in some places. In rural places where there's no access to modern healthcare, if you get into trouble, you're in really big trouble. And so it's a big risk for a woman's life. And so this is why um, nature has adopted the strategy that men produce enormous amounts of sperm and men have programmed or males have programmed into them that they want to have sex with as many females as possible really because you want to distribute your genes to as many individuals as possible but the counterbalance to that is that the females because they have this very high cost of rearing and growing a baby being responsible for making that baby while they're pregnant for months um, they tend to be much more fussy about their matings so therefore you end up with a sort of agreement there where the, the males are providing the sperm and they're, they're trying to desperately and fighting with other males to to be the successful individual that mates with the female, but the females are much more selective about who they'll mate with because the cost of the women, the females, is much higher. Um, But this is why humans probably form partnerships because although the female has the metabolic cost of carrying the baby... the idea is that if you've got a partnership there where both individuals contribute to growing the young and then growing up the young feeding the young and you know providing an environment and home and finance and so on that that provides a nurturing environment it is a partnership so there is a contribution from both sides and uh, and it's give and take and so that's why it's successful because you you need people having sex and animals having sex because that's how you create genetic diversity because you're mixing genes if we just went around copying ourselves as clones we would end up like bananas and I don't mean that flippantly bananas are under threat from fungal diseases because banana plants are all clones they genetically copy themselves they don't have sex and there's therefore very low genetic diversity and if a disease comes along that can attack a banana plant it can attack every banana plant and we've seen the consequences of this uh, over 100 years ago with the Irish potato famine when a fungus turned up that wiped out potatoes in Ireland and you know millions of people starved. Friends thank you so much for holding on what is your question for Chris? My question is I'm planning to retire on Mars I would like to know from Chris that how long are we to see the first city on Mars? And two, do we really need to terraform Mars in order for us to set up shop there? Because I'm thinking of a big house, which is like a city. And thirdly, how, what is our African preparedness to contribute to such um, endeavor? Yeah, cluster of questions there, Chris. Well, what a way to also consider spending your retirement, a retirement village on Mars. Um, you know, people do say, though, it'd be a pretty boring place, no atmosphere.
there's a bit of an atmosphere on Mars. It's it's very horrible place to go though. There's there's no ni- nice air. You couldn't go outside walking around because the, the atmosphere is very very thin. It's all carbon dioxide. It's extremely cold. You know, top temperature on Mars is about naught. Um, there's nothing to defend you from ultraviolet radiation. So there's this searing radiation coming down from the sun every day. I'm not really selling this, am I? But people want to go because it's there. Now, terraforming means turning one thing into something resembling what we have here on Earth at the moment. To do that on the scale of a whole planet is is an extraordinary feat and not something we're going to be able to do for a very long time. And when we do start doing it, we would measure how long it took to do it, not in decades, but in centuries. So this is not a viable option if we want to go to Mars and live there in the near term. Maybe in the distant, distant future, perhaps, but not right now. So if we do want to live on a distant body in in the solar system somewhere, whether that's Mars, the moon, wherever, we're going to have to build a home, and that home will be some kind of base that will provide a home from home. It will provide all the functions that we need in order to keep us in the environment to which we have become adapted and evolved to live. So that means an oxygen-rich environment, it means temperature that's fairly tightly regulated, it means the right sort of humidity, it means an environment in which we can grow food, that means plants, it could also include animals, it could also include in vitro meat, growing a burger in a test tube, which is what people are effectively doing. So we can have meat, but we don't have to have the overhead of rearing animals, which are very costly, and they take up a lot of space. So basically there's lots of challenges to surmount, and that's after we've got there which is an even bigger challenge because it takes nine months to get to mars uh, for our fast spacecraft at the moment that are taking rovers and things those rovers are are have incident upon them very high doses of radiation from the sun and and interstellar space coming into our solar system during that journey and that radiation is is potentially lethal because it's what well, it could be you've got basically an entire astronaut's working lifetimes worth of radiation you get in nine months just going to Mars. Uh, we don't know how to keep people healthy while they're on their journey between the planets to Mars because nine months in microgravity uh, plays hell with human physiology. It erodes your skeleton, it weakens your muscles, and it does other things with fluid redistribution in the body. And we want to make sure that we keep people in tip-top condition if, if they're going to survive on Mars. So there are many, many challenges. So I, I wouldn't book your retirement home there yet. I'd, I'd look for somewhere a little bit nicer in the meantime. But once people have solved all those problems, go for it. A question here from someone in one of the cheap seats, also <laughs> known as the producers. <laughs> Tama Gwini, you've got a question. I do. Hi, Chris. How Hi. are you? I'm all right. Um, I, I just I have a question, and it's actually beginning to irritate me. I just wanted to find out if there is an, a scientific explanation for why women who live together, who are around each other, have this have the same menstrual period um time like so i have roommates and I, I just started getting my periods back and we all are you know we all experience it at the same time mm. and all our hormones are up and we just you know we don't get along but it's just it's so irritating i just want to know if there's a scientific explanation for that yeah um, th- there, there are a couple of aspects of this one is that there's an element of you attaching significance to a coincidence people tend to notice that they're all having their period at the same time and so they say oh we must all be in sync um, and that was a chance observation so there's always that as a possibility there's also a biochemical and physiological reason why this can happen which is that uh, people have done research um, there's a lady called um, uh, Kathleen Stern and also Martha McClintock did this study where they got women to wear pads under their arms at various stages of their menstrual cycles they took those pads which were collecting sweat samples from the women 
sterilised them and then taped bits of them under the noses of other groups of females and they showed that, that there's some chemicals coming out of those pieces of uh, absorbent toweling that go up the nose and in some way influence the length of the menstrual cycle of the wearing women and they could change the length of the menstrual cycle by a number of days like a week or two um, I, I haven't seen reproduction of these results since so I'd need to go back and check the literature to make sure it hasn't been disproved but the argument would be therefore that if women make chemicals that can influence the duration of each other's menstrual cycles that you might end up falling into menstrual sync with each other if you have a group of people living together so that might be um, another reason from an evolutionary point of view why might this be beneficial well if you've got a bunch of people who are all uh, reproductively receptive in other words likely to fall pregnant at the same time as each other as we were saying earlier if a bunch of fit blokes turn up and they're big and butch and they can fight off all the opposition then they could potentially make all of them pregnant all at the same time and that would mean lots of their genes were being passed on all at once which would be great for for their genetic fitness wouldn't it i have not seen any evidence to support that theory but there we are i think that's a wonderfully butch way to end the show <laughs> and the year <laughs> And the year as well. Chris, thanks for what's been a stunning year. We enjoy learning from you. Uh, Thank you so much and have a wonderful break. Yeah, have a great Christmas, everyone. See you in 2019. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.